As you'll recall, we have been studying the 23rd Psalm. We're taking it up in two parts. In verses 1 through 4, we considered together last week Yahweh our shepherd. We saw in those verses an extended metaphor. God is the shepherd. The psalmist is the sheep belonging to the shepherd's flock. And the key point that was trying to be communicated is the shepherd's provision and his protection for the flock to strengthen them through the difficulties they face in this life. And we urged that from our place in redemptive history, it's entirely right for us to read this psalm, Jesus is my shepherd. And to hear in the psalm an articulation of the provision and protection that Jesus brings to his people. This morning we take up the conclusion, verses 5 and 6. Here the metaphor changes and we'll consider Yahweh our host. But I'll read the whole of the psalm. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside waters of rest. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of Yahweh together. Let us pray. Our Father, how grateful we are for this precious psalm. And we pray that you would grant us grace to understand and to love, and in that love to live to the praise of your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's look more closely at the words uh, before us. And as last week, we'll, I'll suggest that there needs to be a little bit of elaboration on some of the traditional language that uh, uh, this psalm uh, is used to communicate its interests. Turn with me, verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Now, as I argued last week, the metaphor here changes. Now, not Yahweh as shepherd, but Yahweh per, 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 um, portrayed as a wonderful host. Now, some have tried to argue that the image of the shepherd and the sheep is present throughout, but the mentioning of a table, the putting of oil on the head, the cup, and the Lord's house all show that this psalm now describes the faithful person as God's guest at a meal. In this new picture, we find even greater intimacy and comfort. The underlying theme remains the same, however. 
a celebration of God's provision and protection. As I said, a table. This symbolizes a great feast. And Yahweh is caring for both the person and making provision for that person at the feast. His head is anointed with oil and the cup is overflowing. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Surely, the psalmist puts it a little more shockingly, a little bolder. Literally, it's only goodness and mercy shall follow me. A bold, faith-filled affirmation. Goodness, here referring to God's providential care. The English retains the term mercy, although that's largely been discarded as an appropriate translation for the Hebrew verb term in question. The Hebrew refers to God's covenant love and loyalty. And in the ESV, it is generally translated and more appropriately translated, steadfast love. In the Psalter, this term is used 128 times. Only twice is it translated mercy, one of them here. This reminds us of what we've seen about uh, the impossibility of changing traditional English, English renderings regardless of how unsuitable they're discovered to be. David says this goodness, this steadfast love will follow me. But again, it's literally a bit more striking. David uses a term that means pursue, even hot pursuit. And he says, this pursuit will lead him to a place where he'll dwell. Again, the idea is return to dwell. Perhaps the images of a feast at a journey's end, coming home. The language certainly lends itself to that. And he'll be in this place forever, literally length of days. This could be a, a parallel with the first part of the verse, all the days of my life, and so mean as long as I'm alive. But more likely it has some sense of days without end. And so perhaps God is behind me and God is before me. On my, on my journey home. We might render it in this way. Only Yahweh's providential care and steadfast love shall pursue me all the days of my life's journey until I return to my Father's house to find my lasting dwelling place. Well, as with last week, then I want to have a see, finally, how this psalm teaches us that Jesus is my host in heaven. But as before, we have to work our way toward such a glorious truth. We'll first consider very carefully the metaphor in its meaning for David, before then turning to its meaning for us. First then, the meaning of the metaphor, Yahweh as host, for the psalmist and the singers of Israel. As we've said, in view is the preparation of a table, the preparation of a table for feasting. 
The Hebrew term used here for prepare means to set out very carefully in order, attentively to the need at hand. It can be used for setting it out out of case at law, marshalling all your arguments so it'll be forceful. It can mean to set out your troops ready to have a military advance against the enemy. Or it can refer to a priest laying out the sacrifices on the altar. In all of these things, you've got a sense of a great concern to make it just right for what needs to be done. I saw some time ago a remarkable video It was about a feast to be held at Buckingham Palace. And they showed how the table was set for the feast. Have you seen that video? This austere, marvelous butler. And he's overseeing the seating. It must have been for 100 people. And they're there with a measure, making sure the fork is just the right distance from the edge of the table in every one of those hundred places, that the wine glass is just the right distance from the drinking glass. The butler was very diligent and exacting. But suppose at that moment the queen herself came in and started setting the table. How astonishing would that be? And yet that is what David has in view here that God himself has come in to carefully spread the feast, perfectly adapted to the needs of his people. David, of course, as a great king, he would have known such blessings. But notice this. Once this song is put into the Psalter, all of Israel is taught so to think of God. From the greatest to the least, Yahweh prepares a feast for me, and all join in such extraordinary spiritual blessings. This table has three elements for us to attend to carefully. It is, first of all, the table of complete protection. It's a table in the presence of my enemies. Recall recall earlier in the psalm, David knew he would face difficulties in life. And it's one thing to survive a threat, to make your way through the valley of death. But it's another thing altogether here in this part of the metaphor to turn the threat into complete triumph. Now, this understanding is contrary, for example, to uh, the interpretation of C.S. Lewis in his book, Reflections on the Psalms. I've often quoted Lewis to good effect, and I have great admiration for him, but I will say, in my judgment, his reflection on the Psalms is his least favorable outing into publishing. And Lewis here is troubled by this psalm because he supposes that the psalmist is filled with spite, rejoicing in his enemy's humiliation, made there to sit and watch while he feasts and so on. 
But I think Lewis has missed the point and stumbled badly. That's not the point at all. Rather, it is that the enemy is entirely subdued. Think of the wag who quoted, the lion will lie down with the sheep, but then quipped, but the lamb's not going to get any sleep. The point is, for this to work, the enemies must be utterly disabled, held completely at bay. The point is something a little like the lesson of Gideon's recruiting program for his fight with the Midian people. You remember, Gideon is appointed to raise an army, and God says to him after he comes with quite a group, too many. If you win, you'll think it's all you're doing. We've got to winnow this down. So, God tells him, say, anyone who's afraid gets to go home. They're out of here. 22,000 left. There were 10,000 remaining. But what must poor Gideon have thought? God again comes and says, too many. And then goes on to impose a very strange test. He said, take them down to the water. Everyone who laps with his tongue as a dog, dog laps shall be set by himself. Everyone who kneels down to drink, he shall be put aside. The number of those who lapped, that is, putting their hands to their mouths, were 300 men. All the rest of the people knelt down to drink the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. Let all the others go to their own. Now notice this. God wants it to be clear that he is delivering the Midians into the hands of Gideon and his men. But on the other hand, God's willing to use means, legitimate means. He sent many home, but not the courageous ones. He didn't say, let the people who are fearful, you have to stay and let the courageous ones go home. No, he wanted the courageous ones to be part of his band. And he didn't say, let the ones who kneel down and stick their head in the water and who are utterly unwary of the threat of enemies stay, but rather those who were wary when they ate and drink, when they would eat and drink, would be watchful, mindful of the enemy. Here illustrated the notion that it's very hard to feast in the presence of your enemies. The courageous and wary are kept. God uses means. But the point is, you can't enjoy a good draft of water or a good feast in the presence of your enemies. Only when God has completely disabled the enemy, has removed all threat whatsoever, can there any, be any real feasting. I think the point is nicely captured by John Adams when he wrote, in a letter to his wife, I must study politics and war, that our sons have the liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. Our sons ought to study mathematics and philosophy, geography, natural history, naval architecture, navigation, commerce, and agriculture in order to give their children the right 
to study painting, poetry, music, tapestry, and porcelain. Only when there's perfect peace achieved can one flourish in the enjoyment of the finest things in life. And that's the promise held forth from the psalmist. I'm feasting in the presence of my enemies. Secondly, it's a table of personal preparation by the host. David says, you anoint my head with oil. Now, there are some times uh, that the distance between us culturally and the scripture makes it hard to read a passage with understanding. Uh, Back in the days when a regular person could work on their car, I used to change my own oil. And one time I crawled under the car and was undoing the nut that would allow the oil to drain out into a pan I had under there, and I was not paying close enough attention, and the thing flipped out of my hand, and my head was anointed with W with, uh, with 10W30. And it didn't put me in the mood for a feast. But my wife and daughters helped me with this point by their behavior. They regularly put greasy stuff on their lips and hands. And it seems to bring them great pleasure. Uh, Apparently, if your skin is very dry, it's a wonderfully restoring balm to have it moisturized with an aromatic oil. Uh, So I could at least see from afar what David might be talking about. Thus, in the desert world, a precious kindness to care for a guest in this way. The psalmist refers to it in 92.10. You have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. As reflective of God's care. In fact, this is so crucial the work of a host, that by Jesus' time, he finds it cause for offense that a host has failed in this service. Do you remember in Luke 7, 46, he's at a feast, it's interrupted, and the Pharisees are unhappy because this woman is anointing Jesus' feet and objecting to it. And Jesus says to them, you did not anoint my head with oil. But she has anointed my feet with ointment. It's a sign of God's blessed provision for his people. Psalm 104, 15. You provide wine to gladden the heart of man and oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen his heart. And this anointing oil is especially associated in the Old Testament with joy. Psalm 45, 7, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This is later picked up in the New Testament as a description of the way the Father has cared for his Son, the oil of gladness beyond his companions. Then thirdly, it is a table of bounteous provision. My cup 
overflows. Again, this, is, uh, this image does not communicate so well to some of us. Moderns, for example, if we're pouring wine at a great feast, well, we only pour a portion into the cup, certainly less than half. To fill the cup to the top, most would consider gauche. Clearly, we are over-refined. Compare that to the glory of the English pub. When you get your pint, if that's not filled to the rim so that you can barely lift it to your lips, you have proper cause to be deeply offended. It is not a proper pint. The host of that establishment pours a glass overflowing, a sign of bounteous provision. This is the wonderful thing that's being communicated. David knew something of bounteous provision. You remember, we've just heard not too long ago of this extraordinary feast that David had in the wilderness in 2 Samuel 17, 27. When David came, they brought in beds and basins and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds and sheep and cheese from the herd for David and for those who were with him to eat. And in fact, it is the embrace of the Lord as host, one capable of providing such a bounteous table that, that comes to be a test of faith in the life of Israel. Recall Exodus. The people doubted God's care in the wilderness. And that doubt was expressed in the very words of our psalm, Psalm 78, 19, we hear of it. They spoke against God, saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? The one who understood their God knew well that God could spread a table in the wilderness. David declares in 31, 19, Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. So the table. Now, this isn't just a temporary table. Rather, it's the sign of a permanent dwelling place. There is a presence and future aspect to this table. The psalmist is already enjoying a banquet, but he's anticipating more to come. That is why he continues, only goodness and steadfast love will follow me. We've already noticed the surely is properly only. Now what are we to make of this? The psalmist knows he's going to face difficulties he knows of dark valleys of threat and destruction. How can he say only? And here's the point. So great is the favor of God in goodness and steadfast love that the exceptions are counted as unworthy of consideration. God's providential provision will see him through all such difficulties. 
And in fact, every one of those difficulties will be a means that God uses to further reveal his own character as an unfailing provider. And God's covenant love will never fail. One commentator put it this way beautifully. The God of covenant, who in the past had expressed his loving kindness to his people so bountifully in their redemption, would continue to do so in the future and forever. Only these things are worthy of considering with respect to my life. Recall that to eat and drink at one's table created a bond of loyalty in Old Testament times. David is contemplating that at this table. And he knew that God's covenant loyalty would follow him all the days of his life. That's what the table signified. But recall, not just follow him all the days of his life, but more robustly, to come after him, to pursue him. David uses this word in Psalm 143, 3, with respect to his enemies. For the enemy has pursued my soul and crushed me to the ground. He uses it with respect to God and the wicked in Psalm 83, 15. May you, God, pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with the hurricane. It is the inexorable movement of God to vindicate his name and punish the wicked. This is the term that David uses now, but now in a glorious sense, with respect to God's providential care and covenant love and loyalty. That covenant care is in hot pursuit of me, and it will be for the whole of my life. Can any one of the wicked escape God's judgment? Absolutely not. He'll pursue them to the end. Can any one of God's people escape his providential care and covenant love and loyalty? Absolutely not. He will pursue to the end. Now, where's David being pursued to? It's to Yahweh's dwelling place. The term used here have intimations of a pilgrimage through life traveling to God's dwelling, a journey home. To be a guest at God's table was more than to simply be an acquaintance. It is finally to dwell with him. This was David's deep longing expressed in Psalm 27, 4. One thing have I asked from the Lord, and that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David sees this as the perfect satisfaction of every good. Psalm 65, 4. Blessed is the one whom you've chosen and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house and the holiness of your temple. Thus the meaning of the metaphor, Yahweh the host for the psalmist and the singers of Israel. Now the meaning of the metaphor 
for us. This psalm is even more wonderful for us. Rereading it in the light of the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. We can read it. Jesus, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your kind providence and covenant love and loyalty shall pursue me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell with you in your house forever. Consider then Jesus, our host in heaven. Recall the parable in our New Testament lesson this morning. It's shocking. The servants are waiting up late for the master to come home from a great feast. Anxious to be prepared as soon as he comes to the door to open the door and to let him in and to make provision for him. And the master loves such faithful servants. And we hear that the ones who are attentive in that way are particularly blessed. But then here's the shocking point. The servants whom the master finds awake when he comes, truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Now this is not an allegory, but nonetheless it is certainly the case that the disciples are being taught to understand that Jesus is the master. And later, Jesus reveals the remarkable truth of it. In Luke 22, at verse 27, he says, Who is greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Well, it's simple. It's the one who reclines at table. But then, a twist that shocks us. But I am among you as one who serves. Jesus came to be the host of his people. And he's making careful preparation for his people. Powerful imagery. In my father's house, Jesus teaches in John 14 too, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Excuse me, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Here Jesus is coming in hot pursuit of his people, and he's going to bring them to his dwelling place. They are going where they belong. It is, in fact, their true home. Jesus is the host of his people. And at that grand place, at the place, at the feast that Jesus will be preparing, will prepare for his people, there will be complete protection for his people. Jesus, above all, is the conqueror of the enemies of his people. You remember how he taught in Luke chapter 11 at 21. He said, when a strong man, fully armed, 
guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than him attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoil. Jesus is that stronger man. And he's overcome the enemy, and he divides the spoil now with his people. Jesus warned believers that this world is a dangerous place. 1 John 4, 3, his apostle teaches us that the spirit of Antichrist is going out into the world. It is coming and is now here. What is the solace of God's people in the face of such a threat? John goes on in verse 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Recall Christ's display of marvelous power, Luke eleven twenty, for example. He said, It's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, and so the kingdom of God has come upon you. Thus, Paul rightly concludes, if God be for us, who can be against us? A feast in the presence of our enemies utterly disabled. And Jesus makes personal preparation of his guests with the spiritual anointing. Of ourselves, we're dressed in filthy rags, unfit for the feast. But those rags are stripped off. And we are bathed, purified, made clean by his grace. And we are anointed, anointed with an anointing that is from God himself, the blessed Holy Spirit. This is what Paul has in view in 2 Corinthians 1.21. In Christ, he says, we have been established anointed. It was he who put a seal upon us. Has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. John calls it the anointing by the Holy One, 1 John 2.20. Not only do we find a lovely, moisturizing, aromatic oil, but rather now the reality of that, the inner dwelling of the Spirit of God that causes us to be the aroma and fragrance of Christ in the world, prepared and fit for his feast. And Jesus makes bounteous provision. Our cup in Christ overflows. Recall there was another cup, a cup that was for us to drink. It was the cup of God's wrath, Revelation 14.10. And that cup was overflowing. It was a terrible threat to us, a cup that might have been ours to drink to the dregs. But Jesus came and took that cup on our behalf. No such libation can ever belong to us now. In its place is the cup of rejoicing, the cup of feasting, a new cup, a covenant in Christ's blood that we drink to the praise of his glory. Thus Jesus, at the Last Supper, he takes the cup, and when he had given thanks, he says, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, poured out for many the forgiveness of sins. 
and it is an abundant feast. Paul reminds us of this argument that is compelling. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Graciously give us all things. It is a cup overflowing, and it's guaranteed because God has already demonstrated the length to which he's willing to go to care for his people in Christ Jesus. It is an abundance beyond imagination. And of course, it's not just a temporary feast. Rather, this image reflects the permanence of Christ's people at Christ's feast. And we're pursued by Jesus to this end. If David could say, only goodness and steadfast love would pursue him, surely we must say more. If David supposed that the suffering here in his pilgrimage was not worthy to be compared to God's goodness, surely we must say more than David. And Paul guides us in this. Romans 8.18 I consider the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. We should have a far greater sense of that only. The goodness and steadfast love of Jesus will pursue me all the days of my life. Again, as Paul so powerfully put it in 2 Corinthians 4.17, this is a light momentary affliction, and it's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We're pursued to the dwelling place of our Savior, where we are adopted members of the family of God, sons and daughters, with our older brother, Jesus. Here's the gospel. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple of the Lord, and that forever. Recall that David speaks of length of days, not in and of itself an expression of eternity, but in the Old Testament the saints knew that covenant commitment had no end. They had intimations of a brighter future than Sheol. The psalmist saw this in 21.4. He spoke of how he had asked for life, and God gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. Jesus argued this point with the Sadducees, who denied the resurrection. And he showed from the Old Testament the truth of the matter. He cited for them, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This said when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were long dead. QED, God is not the God of the dead, but the living. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob must live on. If you understand, understood this statement, 
you would know there was life beyond life. Jesus makes the matter perfectly plain. He speaks of my father's house. This is the place where Jesus is at home. And he wonderfully says to his disciples in 835 of John's gospel, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. And those whom the son brings with him remain forever. This is Paul's confidence. I am sure that neither death nor life nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray together. Oh, our God, how precious is this psalm. And how we rejoice in the greater light that we have now to embrace its truth. Help us then by faith to believe and help our unbelief. Preserve us as faithful singers of this song for Christ's sake.